Okay, good morning. Um, Bob says we're a couple of week late, weeks late on this. We did the same thing after Sukkot. After Sukkot, we started the series about the Bracha Nesha for Sukkot. Um, I recently heard a class from Rav where he said that he got a Shaila on Friday afternoon. I forget exactly what the Shaila was, but it was something to do with the medical care of an animal of a Shabbos. And, who, and you know, he says... There are, there's a simon in Shulchan Aruch about it, but when you learn that simon, I don't delve into it too deeply because I never, it never occurred to me that I would get a shaila about giving a dog an injection on Shabbos. So in today's class, we're also going to cover a topic which is uh, an explicit halacha in Shulchan Aruch, and um, many people never learned it, and even those people who do learn it don't necessarily pay too much attention to it or remember it because it doesn't appear to ever be relevant. Um, and um, but also in the process, besides, of course, even we learn Torah, like we know, says, talks about in Tanya, even if it's not practically relevant and it never will happen, we still mitzvah learning Torah. And in addition, um, uh, in the process, we'll discover a lot the the the, the, the structure of the mitzvah um, etc. So uh, a friend of mine told me. Uh, this is in honor of our friend from England. So an acquaintance went into Grzynski's Bakery in London. And apparently the bakeries, I don't know if the bakeries here do it. I'm not sure what the point of this is, but apparently this is a thing that you could come in on Friday afternoon or on Friday, you could come in on Friday and purchase dough to take home and make your own challah with it. Yeah. So somebody walks into the bakery and he wants to buy dough. And of course the People working at the bakery are not the Jew, are not Jewish. And he sees how they go to the back and they have this huge bowl, mixing bowl, and there's a fresh dough just finished being made. And he and they give him whatever he ordered, the pound of dough, and they he, he, he they give him his dough, and um, that's it. And this person has now um discovered the scandal of all scandals. What's going on over here? The non-Jewish workers in the bakery are giving him dough without um, without uh, being mafish challah, without separating challah from the dough. He saw the dough finish. He saw them give it to him. What's going on? So he calls the Rav He calls the the cashless agency that certifies this bakery, and he tells them what happened. And they said, "What's the problem?" The halacha is oichalomishayim. The halach is that in Chutzlaret, in the diaspora, when you make dough or when you bake challah, you don't have to separate the challah before you eat the challah. You can bake the dough, you can eat the challah. And as long as you make sure that before you finish devouring it, you leave over a piece of challah or a piece of dough and you, um, and you, uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I skipped that one part of the story. He said before he called the the hechsher, he asked the the, the non-Jew serving that he didn't take other. So they said, "Oh, the rabbi comes in later to do it," which is indeed the halacha. And and outside of Eretz Yisrael, what is strictly speaking, we'll see soon whether why why it's not the practice to do so usually. Um, but so, but but you can leave over and be mafish chala at the end, and. Um, there's different ways of understanding the mechanism, whether it retroactively um, retroactively works that it's as if you were mafreshchala at the beginning, or whether in or, or there's no mitzvah taken at the beginning. We'll discuss all of this soon. So this is the halacha of Eichel Meshayim. 
Now, there is a prohibition. So, so in practice, we all know that it's the custom of the halacha. Again, we're going to discuss all these things in, in, in detail. Um, that we separate challah before we eat the challah and before we bake the dough. However, when this becomes... Do you happen to know what the CRC policy about is about Eichel and Mishai? All I know is that I take challah from dough that they make in certain amounts. Uh, are they marked with that nobody should use anything from the dough before you were marked with challah? They want me to do it before. Right. Um, okay. Anyway, but so... I don't know how it's like in the bakery, because the bakery, they don't have everything. Mashkiach, right. The Mashkiach in the challah, they have Mashkiach in the... Okay. Anyway, so... But when this halacha becomes very relevant is on Shabbos. If on Shabbos there's a prohibition, you're not allowed to separate challah on Shabbos, as we will, as we will see. So, how do I, one second, let me pen. Um, so, if, if a person remembered on Shabbos that they forgot to be mafish hala before Shabbos, so then they can continue eating their meal as long as they leave over some hala and after Shabbos, then can be mafish hala. This is a halacha that comes up, fair, I mean, it comes up, it's like actually just a few months ago. I had somebody knock on my door Friday night that they just um, they forgot to be mafish chala and I told them no problem, continue eating, just leave over some for after Shabbos and you'll be mafish chala after Shabbos. So here comes the uh, exciting story. This is a true story, it happened here to a friend of mine right here in the community. It was this year was Shabbos out of Pesach. And for Shabbos out of Pesach, you need to have Chomets to Kichala for the Friday night meal, for the Shabbos day meal. And he's a big family, and he had uh, relatives staying over for Pesach, and there were a lot of people. And I don't know exactly when this happened, but uh, at some point they went to buy to the store to buy challah for Shabbos, and all the stores were sold out. Sold out, and so they have to bake challah. But now they did have the option of take, using egg matzah, but that's not a very convenient option because you really have to eat a lot of it. You basically have to eat about four matzahs for each meal. I mean, it's a it's a it's a huge amount that you have to eat in order to be able to wash and make a mitzi on it, according to all opinions. So the missus goes down to the basement and she finds a bowl and this and that, and she makes a chomet sticker dough in her basement. And then the, her husband takes this chomet sticker dough to, I believe it was his parents' house, who are out of town for Pesach, so their kitchen, their chomet sticker kitchen was still usable. And he baked the challah over there and they brought it home. They had enough bulkalach for everyone to have a bulkalach on Friday night and a bulkalach on Shabbos day. And everything was all good. Come home Friday night, and suddenly they realize that because of this unusual, you know, they baked it here, they forgot to be mafish challah. So he's like, okay, no problem. We all know this. Is so he put one of the bulkalach in the freezer, in the chametz sticker freezer, and he says, okay, this is with the salt chametz. And um, after Pesach, we'll be mafish challah from it, and we're good to go. And indeed, they make kiddush and start eating the meal. And then he realizes that, hold on a second, the chametz was already sold on Friday afternoon. And the chametz that I leave out for Shabbos, now I don't, I actually don't know if in this particular story, at what point did he bake the challah on Friday afternoon after the sale? I'm not sure. We'll discuss. Um, I, I believe that this is going to be a two-part class. It'll just take two, two, two classes to cover all the material. And I think in next class, we'll discuss the various different options of the different ways that rabbis sell the chametz in the year when Erev Pesach falls on Shabbos. 
and whether there would have been different workarounds had here, you know, depending on what the, which method the rabbi used. But in this particular case, it was here in Chicago, he sold this chametz with Rabbi Hertz. Rabbi Hertz sold the chametz before Shabbos, and it was any chametz that you leave out for Shabbos is not included in the sale, and it's your responsibility to make sure to destroy it before the time of destroying chametz on Shabbos, you know, late Shabbos morning. So here they are, they're in the middle of the meal, they finished eating their chametz, and the chametz in the freezer, but it's, it's not included in the sale, so they're stuck. So what do you do? Now, what in fact he did, spoiler alert, <laughs> what in fact he did was, um, after some research, was that he was mafish chala on Shabbos, he separated the chala on Shabbos, and he gave it to a koyhen to eat. It happened to be that his brother-in-law who was staying with him was a koyhen, and he gave it specifically to a koyhen below the age of nine, um, his nephew, and his, his nephew ate it. That's what he did. And what I would like to do over the course of today and next week is to, to, to give an overview of the sugya of the halachas of Rosh Hashanah and to hopefully discuss, determine whether or not what he did was the correct um, option. Could there have been any other workarounds and any other solutions to this issue? And Hashem should take a help. It should be halacha because nobody should ever forget to be mafish again. Okay. So the Pasuk says, and here we're going to share the screen. Pasuk says, in Pashashlach, Dabel B'nei Yisrael, speak to the Jewish people, and you should say to them, B'vayachem ha'la'aret, when you come into the land, Asher ani mevi eschem shama, which I am bringing you to, L'hoya ba'acholchem menachem ha'aret, when you eat from the bread of the land, Tarimu Tarumu la Hashem, you should separate a teruma la Hashem. It's important to remember that the word challah, which we use, so we master you separate challah, we call it challah, but the Torah refers to it with the word teruma, which usually when we say teruma, we're referring to the first of the tithes that is taken from um, raw produce, from the raw crop. But the challah is also referred to by the Torah with the word teruma. What is this teruma? Reishis in the beginning of your dough, challah terima la Hashem, you must be given as challah to Hashem. Kisrumah's garden, just like the Truma from your crop, Kintruma Isa. Now, here it's explicit in the Torah that it has to be Reishi Sarisechem, the beginning of your dough, the first of your dough. And that is um, in, 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 in halachic terminology, that means that, that um, Chala is Teveles, the dough. In other words, that before you have separated Chala, the dough is Tevel. It is forbidden to eat teve, the, the dough before you are Mafish Chala. Earlier, we said about, about that you can eat the dough and be mafish later. That's only in the diaspora. But here we're talking about the voyachem of the artist when you come into the land and when you eat from the bread of the land. When you have a dough in Eretz Yisrael, it is explicit in the Torah and that one may not eat the, um, the, this, uh, this dough before, um, before mafish chala. And if you are, it is the prohibition of tevel, which um, is a very severe prohibition. However, this, like it's like we just said, this is only applies in Israel. The mitzvah of Mafish Kala only applies in Eretz Yisrael. And additionally, it only applies when Kol Yisrael Alad Mosam, when the entire Jewish people are in Israel. Let's see how the Rambam says this in the laws of the Kurim chapter Hey Allah Hey. According to scriptural law, we are only obligated to separate Chala in Eretz Yisrael, as it states, when you partake of the bread of the land. 
And only when the entire Jewish people are located there, as it states, when you enter, right? When you enter, i.e. when you all enter, and not only when a portion of you enter. For this reason, in the present era, and even in the era of Ezra in Eretz Yisrael, the observance of Chalad is only a rabbinic decree. In other words, like this. The, um, when the first, when Joshua took the Jewish people into the land, the entire Jewish people came, and then there was a biblical obligation to be Mafish Chalad. With the second commonwealth, when Ezra came up from Bavel to Israel, so most of the Jewish people, or many of the Jewish people, remained in Bavel. And so from after the destruction of the first temple until today, there has never been a time when Hephrosh's Chalo, when separating Chalo was biblical, even in Israel, even in Israel till this very day. And even the entire duration of the second temple, which is called Bias Ezra, there was, no, there was no biblical obligation to separate challah in Israel. And even though the Gemara actually records a story over here, which I did not put in the English, okay, we'll just read the story because it may come up again soon, that Rav Hunda, the son of Yeshua, um, met the rabbis, the Rabbon of the Beirav, the Talmudim of Rav, who were sitting and saying that um, Chala nowadays is the Raisa. Um, and I said to them, no, that Chala nowadays is, the, is only the Rabban. However, however, even though nowadays Chala, even in Israel, is only the Rabban, is only a rabbinic decree, nevertheless, the laws that pertain to Chala in Israel are much more strict as they are than they, than they are as they pertain to Chala in the diaspora, because in Eretz Yisrael, it's called Ikram in HaTorah. That means that it's um, at the root, it, at the basis, the root is something which is a biblical mitzvah. It happens to be that today we're missing a requirement, namely the requirement that all of the Jewish people live in Israel, so therefore it's only rabbinic in nature today. But because it's Ikram in HaTorah, because at the, essentially there is a biblical mitzvah to be mafish Chala in Eretz Yisrael, we are much more strict about the halachas of Chala and Eretz Yisrael. Now, um, <clears throat> the sages instituted that there should be, we should be mafish Chala in Chutz Laaretz as well, even outside of Eretz Yisrael. And the reason is, well, we'll see that there's a couple of reasons. Let's read the way the Rambam codifies this and then we'll discuss. So this is the Rambam in the same chapter, Chapter 5, Halacha 8, and let's read it in English. There are three different sets. This is basically paraphrasing the Mishnah in Mesech Tzchala. Shalosh Arotzeis Lachala. There are three different sets of laws that apply to Chala in three different lines. In the entire area, so basically there's the Oile Bavel, there's the land of Israel that was considered, that was captured, that was conquered by the Oile Bavel, that Ezra. Uh, when they came up back from Bav- from Bavel to Eretz Yisrael that they captured, which is, and the Eretz Yisrael that they captured is smaller than the original land of Israel which Joshua came, conquered. But, we're not going to get into all the details of this now, there's the whole question of Kedusha Rishonah and Kedusha Shnia, whether or not the Kedusha Rishonah, the original sanctification of the land that was accomplished by Yehoshua, retained its, would the land retain its sanctity, or did, when they left Israel um, to Bavel, did that sanctity of the land become uh, deactivated 
and was reactivated by Ezra, and therefore only those portions of the land that Ezra conquered are considered part of the of Eretz Yisrael. So therefore, we have Shalish Eretz Yisrael. We have the smaller part of Israel that was conquered by Ezra. We then have the bigger section, which includes, um, which we'll see some, which is includes the, the the bigger area of Israel that was conquered by the what's called the Eilim Mitzrayim by Joshua, but not by the Eilim and then we have outside of that. Now, the truth is that even within outside of that, there is a machlokes between the Rambam and Tosus, whether the whole diaspora is the same, or if there's a difference between those land, the, the parts of the diaspora that are close to Israel versus the parts that are far from Israel. And it's unclear exactly what close and far means. I mean, clearly Chicago would be far, but uh, is Turkey close? Is Turkey far? You know, where do you exactly draw the line? But we're not going to get into that. In, in our class. We're just going to talk about Shalish Aratis Nukhala. We're actually primarily going to talk about two, about Israel and the diaspora. Okay. There are three different sets of laws that apply to Chala in three different lands. In the entire area that was settled by those who returned from Babel until Kaziv, one Chala should be separated according to the appropriate measure, and the priests may partake of it. So, you mafish Chala, and the priests may partake of it. In the remaining portions of Eretz Yisrael, that was settled by the Jews who came out of Egypt, but not by those who returned from Babel, i.e. from Kziva till Amana, two chalas should be separated. One should be burnt and one should be eaten. So what the Rambam is saying is like this. You have the land of Israel itself, where you just do the simple mitzvah in the Torah, you separate challah from the dough and you give it to a Kohen to eat. In order for the Kohen to eat it, the Kohen has to be pure. Now, there are um, numerous different types of impurity, some of them we're reading in the Torah these days, that could affect the Kohen. And he has to, as long as the Kohen is not contaminated by any of those forms of impurity, he may eat challah. Basically, um, it would mean coming, Tomas Mace, having come in contact or being in the same, under the same roof as a dead body. Or, Additionally, um, there are numerous uh, bodily emission, uh, emissions that could make a Kohen Tame, which if we're, we'll get into more detail soon, but let's just talk about a seminal emission for a man that could make a Kohen impure. Or if he, and the third type is if he came in contact with a dead um, animal or dead um, sharetz, uh, you know, a lizard or something like that, those are that's three generic types of impurity. Provided that the Kohen has purified himself from any of those three, which in the latter two cases, meaning having contact with a dead animal or with a bodily emission, it just requires going to mikvah and waiting until nightfall after going to mikvah. And in the case of coming in contact with a dead body, with a corpse, um, that requires the sprinkling of the ashes of the red heifer. So you have to take care of that, and then the coin can partake in the harm. Now, there is a concept called Tumas Eretz Ha'amim. That means that any, any area of land, any, any part of the world, outside of Israel, the Chachamim decreed that it be considered automatically impure. But we're not going to get into all the reasons for that right now. Now, because the part of Israel that was, con again, the, the bigger part of Israel, the part that was originally conquered by the Jews who came out of Egypt, but was not conquered by those who returned from Babel. So that is also included in the Tumas Eretz Amin, 
it also has impurity because it's outside of Israel, because it wasn't conquered by Israel. But we're very sensitive about it because people consider it Israel, so people don't realize that it's impure, right? You know, it's kind of a little bit like Eilat's today, which halakhically, according to the vast majority of opinions, is not part of the borders of the land, is not included within the borders of Israel, but everybody considers Eilat to be Israel. So it seems like that was a similar thing there, that halakhically, um, this area was contaminated by Tumas Eretz Amim. It was included in the decree of the Chachamim that anywhere outside of Israel is considered impure. And therefore, you can't eat the challah that you, you separate challah, but you can't eat it because everybody's impure. The challah is impure, the koreh, everything's impure. So you can't eat it. But the problem is people don't realize that. People think it's Israel. So what are you going to do? You're going to separate challah and you're going to burn it. But so people will think that you just took challah and burnt it. You're not allowed to just burn challah if it's pure. And only if it's impure, you're allowed to burn it. You're not allowed to just take challah and burn it. So therefore, the Ram instituted that in that section of Israel, you should take a second challah. The first challah you burn, the second challah you give to the Kohen, and then people will, will think about this, and they'll inquire, and they'll say, what's going on over here? Why are you giving one to the Kohen? Why are you burning the first one? And then they will learn that indeed the reason why it was burnt was not because you may just separate challah and burn it with no, with no impurity, but only because... And um, this part of Israel is included within the decree of Tumas Eretzan. That's the normative way of explaining it. Other Rishonim explain it a little bit differently, not that that section of land inherently is impure, but because it's so close, I guess, ge geographically and possibly socially, to places which are indeed in Chutz Daaretz, and there's a lot of travel to and fro, it would be impossible to reasonably expect people to be able to protect the challah that they take there from coming in contact with Tumas Eretz Amin. So you're in Syria, which is part of, let's say, the, I, I believe Syria is part of Syria. Yeah, I think it's what we call it. I think I'm exactly the geography, but I'm, I'm pretty sure Syria is part of, or at least parts of Syria are included in that part of Israel. So you take challah and let's even say there's no Tumas Eretz Amin, but it's it's right next to your neighbor and he's going to come in with Tumas Eretz Amin and contaminate it. So, so because we can't um, avoid that, Chachamim said you have to burn the challah. But because people, we don't want people to make a mistake and think that you could just burn challah with no valid reason, they instituted to take a second challah, which you do give to a Kohen, and um, that way people realize that there's something more going on here and they um, learn about it. Okay? Let's see that in the Rambam. Why do we separate two challahs there? Because the first challah is impure because this land was not sanctified in the time of Ezra, and the first sanctification, namely the sanctification of the land which was done by Joshua, was nullified after the Jews were exiled. But nevertheless, since the land is from Israel, a challah, one-forty-eighth of the dough, is separated and is burnt. We're not going to get into the numbers of the measurements, the 48th, the 24th. Well, that's another, for another discussion. A second challah is also separated and given to a priest to eat, a kohen to eat, so that people will not say that pure teruma, or pure challah, remember challah and teruma can be synonymous, should be burnt. For the first challah was burnt, even though it did not come in con contract impurity in a manner that was known to all. So people will mistakenly think that it's permissible to burn teruma that did not become impure. And therefore, the second challah, and therefore, um, we, uh, we, we take a second challah and give it to the current to make, uh, to, to draw um, awareness to this, to this uh, situation. Okay, let's skip the next line. 
in all the lands from Ammona and beyond, whether in Syria or in other lands, so basically anywhere else in the world, including Chicago, two chalas should be separated. When you bake a dough in Chicago, you have to separate two chalas. News to you, huh? Okay. Well, don't worry. We'll, we'll clear up all the surprises soon. One of them is burnt, so that people should not say we saw impure turma being eaten. And one is eaten so that the two chalas, the laws of chalas will not be forgotten by the Jewish people. So here we have the the, the opposite problem. The truth is that to separate chala and chutzlaretz is only a rabbinic decree, right? Because we said before, the process says explicitly only have to separate chala and Israel. Now, whereas in the areas of what he called from Kaziv to Lamana, people commonly did not realize that that area was included in the decree of Eretzamin, so that's why so people didn't know that it's Tamil. In Chicago, we have the opposite problem. In Chicago, everybody knows that Chicago is Tamil. Everybody knows that, well, to, on, on, two, on two accounts. Everybody knows that Chicago is part of the diaspora and is thereby included in um, Thomas Eretzamin. And at least nowadays, we have an additional factor that everybody knows that every one of us is Tamil Memes. We have all... Um, come either in a cemetery or under the same roof or in, in, in some contact that conveys tumma of a corpse, and we no longer have access to the ashes of the paraduma. So we're all tamit mes. So theoretically, you could separate only one challah in Chicago and give it to a kohen, but because a kohen would, uh, um, because because. Of the diaspora is permissible, theoretically, is permissible to be eaten in a state of impurity because it's just. The problem is that people won't realize the difference between and And if you separate Chala in Chicago and give it to a Kohen to eat, people will think, hey, I know this Chala is impure. I know the Kohen is impure. And he ate it. So that means you're allowed to eat challah that's impure. And then they'll go to Israel and do the same thing. So therefore, you have to separate You have to separate two. One of them is burnt, so that people should not say we saw impure tumor being eaten. And one of them is eaten. Why, does, why do you have a different one to be eaten? You separate one, you burn it. Okay, so that's it, you're done. You separate the challah and it's impure, so you burnt it. Why do you have to separate a second one here in Chicago? So that the laws of challah will not be forgotten by the Jewish people. Because people will think, oh, challah is just burnt. They won't realize that, no, actually, challah is one of the, it's one of the 24 gifts that God gave to the Kohenim. People will think challah is just, you know, like the story of, you know, why do you separate and cut off the ends of the fish and the ends of the meat? Because my bubby had a pot that was too small. People think, oh, there's a thing. You take off a piece of dough and put it in the fire and burn it. People won't realize that challah is actually a mitzvah to give to the coin, etc. And therefore, you have to take two challahs in Chicago. Now, since Bo, oh, one second. Okay. Now, so who can eat the one that's eaten? Oh, anyone. Anyone that's a Kohen. Not, it has to be a Kohen, not a non-Kohen, but it could be a Kohen with any type of impurity. Now, again, let's review the three types of impurity that we have over here. We have the impurity of 
coming in context with a corpse, which that's included really in Tumas Tum- 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 the Tumah of the diaspora is, I believe, associated with that. Then we have Tumah of a bodily emission. And then we have Tumah of coming in contact with an enemy. So in Chutzlaretz in Chicago, you have to separate two chalas. One of them you burn, one of them you give out the coin to eat. This kohen, this challah can be eaten by a kohen who has any of those three types of tumah, no, no restrictions whatsoever. The only restriction is that it may not be eaten by a non-kohen. Um, when we say kohen, it could mean a few things. It could mean either an adult kohen, could mean a kohen child, boy or girl, or could be the daughter, the unmarried, the un- never married daughter of a kohen, and it could be the wife of a Kohen. And um, we'll see later, probably more next week, that it could even be an animal that belongs to a Kohen. Um, so if a Kohen in Nishtagadach has a dog, <laughs> so if a Kohen has a dog, um, so then he could feed his dog. I don't know, do, do, do dogs eat bread? Okay, so so you could give it to, to, to the dog. However, there is a workaround. So you, and again, in Chicago, you have to separate two chalas, one of them to be born, one of them to give to a kohen and any kohen can eat it. However, what if, what if you only want to do one chala? You don't want to have to separate two chalas. So then the halacha is, again, in Chutzlar, it's in Chicago. If you give it to a kohen who is pure, who is not tummy, then you only need to do one. If you burn the first chala, then the second one can be given to a chala, to a kohen, even if he has any that type of impurity. But if you give the first, if you give, if you do one and take, give it to a kohen who is not Tomei, who is Tahar, then you don't need to have another one to burn it. So, now, what time, how, how Tahar does he have to be? Now, obviously, there's no requirements for him to be purified from Tomas Mace, from, because we don't have a Paraduma, we don't have a red heifer, so that, that's not part of the equation. Um, he has to go to Mexico now, or she. So there's a what's called in halacha tuma ayotze olav migufin, a bodily tuma. So as far as a man is concerned, that could either be okay. First of all, it could be matzora. Matzora, which is just in this week's parsha, is included in that. But practically speaking, that's not relevant nowadays. So we're not going to talk about that. Um, for a male kohen. It could be either a zav or a keri. Keri means a seminal omission. Now, zav is interesting. Zav, uh, if anybody knows any more details about this, please um, speak up. Zav is described as similar to a seminal omission, but uh, it's also, it was in yesterday's parasha. There are three characteristics that differentiate between a regular seminal omission and, um, and a zav. One is that seminal emission, a regular seminal emission is, is a healthy thing and a zov is considered an anomaly, something unhealthy. Another is that the color of the substance that comes out is a different shade of white. And the third is that a regular carry seminal emission emerges from an erect organ and a zov emission comes out from an, what, the, what we call in halacha, a dead organ, from a non-erect organ. Now, I don't know the, the way when I was a kid I was told Zav doesn't exist nowadays. I don't know. Again, I'm not. I'm not. As far as I understand, uh, Zav does not exist nowadays, and we'll see soon in the halacha that 
most of the Pasim don't even talk about it, but there is one prominent safe on the laws of Chala called the Chala Slachem, who was a uh, pre-war, uh, important safer, and he is very concerned with with with, with Zoh. So let's leave that aside for now. But basically, um, you have Zoh, for, ma- ma- was, uh, for a man is concerned, you have a carry, a regular seminal mission, and possibly Zoh as well. Now, how does one purify oneself from carry? You have to go to mikvah. When you go, a zav has a much more complicated process of um, purification. Similar to a woman who has to count seven clean days, a zav would also have to count seven clean days. In addition, for a zav, a regular mikvah is not good enough. He must immerse in a mayon nechaim, in a spring. Not in a well or in a mikvah. It has to be in a live spring. Okay, that's as far as an adult male is concerned. For a child male, um, in halachically speaking, we say beneath below the age of nine. Obviously, it's not relevant. Even though usually we say the average age, age of reach, reaching puberty is 12, is 13 for a boy. And I think that uh, practically speaking nowadays with all the hormones, it's, it's a little bit less than that. But as far as this is concerned, we say a child below the age of nine is considered not to have had a similar mission. Now, it's very important to also to re- remember another important thing that um, in, to become pure from a Tumas carry um, from a from a seminal mission, there's two things. You have to go to mikvah and then you have to wait for nightfall. It's the first mission in Shas, the Koranim eat Truma by night because they go to mikvah and then they have to wait. The sun sets and the combination of going to mikvah and then waiting for sunset. That is, um, is, is, is um, easy for any. Although, when it comes to Chalas Chutzlaretz, if we're going to eat Chalas and Chutzlaretz, he doesn't have to go to Mikvah. He, sorry, he doesn't have to wait for, for sunset. Just going to Mikvah is okay to eat it right away. Yes? Are we permitted to ask the Kohen to be stolen? Let's finish the. Let, let, let's finish the. Um, now, that's as far as a male Kohen is concerned. As far as a female Kohen is concerned, which is either the daughter of a Kohen or the, or, or the unmarried daughter of a Kohen or the wife of a Kohen. So, um, there are more possibilities. First of all, if she's Nida, so then, you know, she has to make fun. And there also, the Chalas Lechem says that so there's no, people who have learned Halachas Nida will, in depth, will know. That there's numerous Mishnahis and laws in the uh, record in Gemaris about Nida, which the, the Beshasa for the Torah will say that's for Taris. In other words, there are many laws that we don't keep nowadays because they don't pertain to Nida as far as the husband wife relationship is concerned. They pertain to Nida as far as dealing with um, consecrated meats or to, to a holy, uh, you know, uh, Truma, Karbanas, Pachim, etc. So, the Chalas Lechem says that he's concerned about giving Chala to a Kohen, woman Kohen, because even though she knows all the laws to go to Mikvah to allow herself to be permitted to her husband, she may not be familiar with all the, with the additional stringencies that apply to purifying herself um, and going to Mikvah um, to be able to eat Chala. So again, Chalas Lechem is very much more about that. I'm not sure that other possible would agree with that. Um, now, that's for a married woman. For a teenage girl, nowadays teenage girls don't go to mikvah. So once, I don't know exactly at what age it would be, I'm not sure if it says this anywhere, but at whatever age we could, a, a girl is assumed to have begin, begun menstruating, she, wouldn't, she would be impure. But if you have a, I don't know, a three-year-old daughter of a Kohen, then um, technically she would also be allowed to eat truma. An additional form of impurity 
for a woman is Yoladis, a woman who has given birth, is also impure. Um, I mean, usually that comes together with bleeding anyway, but uh, yeah, it's also impure. And another one which is relevant is Peletas Shikhvazera. That means a woman who has had relations with her husband. So at some point, there may be some discharge of her husband's semen from her. So within 72 hours after they've had relations, she has to wait those 72 hours and then go to Mikvah again. Practically speaking, nowadays, nobody does that. So basically, a woman would be allowed to eat the challah um, after she's gone to Mikvah before she's had relations with her husband, which is not usually that practical or that much time. But for, so, so, so the most practical, we'll see, maybe perhaps we'll see more details about this soon, but most practical, it's going to be uh, male Kohen, either below the age of nine or older than the nine who has been to Mikvah. Now, and again, so, and in Chutzlar, it's in Chicago, you have to do two chalas, one to a Kohen, even a Kohen is completely impure, or, and one is, then is burnt. Alternatively, you can do one chala and, um, and give it to a Kohen who has gone to Mikvah, and even though he's still contaminated with Tumas Mas, he's coming, you know, just come from the funeral or anything else, and even he's been to Mikvah, he's okay. Let's read that inside. From Halacha Yudin and Rambam, although challah from the diaspora is impure, since its fundamental requirement is a rabbinical ordinance, it is forbidden to be eaten only by priests who are impure because of impurity that results from a physical condition. These include priests that have a seminal omission, zavim, zavim, nidus, women who give birth, people with the vexeras, others who are impure because they have been in contact with other sources of impurity, even those who are impure because of contact with the corpse are permitted to partake of it. Accordingly. If there was a priest in the world who was a minor in Chutzlaretz, whether in Syria or anywhere else, and one desired to separate only one chala, he could separate one forty-eighth of the dough. It could be eaten by a priest. Again, I'm not getting into the numbers now for this class. Um, it could be eaten by a priest who is a minor and who never had a seminal mission, or a female from the priestly family who has never menstruated. The person need not separate a second chala. Similarly, if a, person, if a priest who was an adult, immersed himself in the mitzvah and thus purified himself from purity resulting from the mission of semen or zivos, may partake in um, the first challah. So the word here, mikvah, is inaccurate because a mikvah would be good for a mission of semen, but a mikvah would not be good for a zivos. For zivos, need to be table in a mayon. So this is not the words of the Rambam. This is in the brackets that was added in by the translator. This is an inaccurate uh, word. Anyway, um, then... The one who separated need not separate a second challah in the diaspora. This applies even though the sun has not set after he immersed himself, and although he remains ritually impure due to the impurity imparted by a, cor a corpse. Um, let's, before we continue, let's look at the charts. So some of you, I gave you the printer chart, but I'm going to bring it up here on the screen. There we go. But now I have to zoom out. I have to out to do that. Okay, so the, in, in Eretz Yisrael, which in the smaller land, part of the land, which was in the second by Ezra was conquered, you only separate one challah and you give it to a Kohen who must be 100% pure, included sprinkle, including sprinkled by the ashes of the red heifer. In the western part over here of Eretz Yisrael, sorry, the eastern side of Eretz Yisrael, which was conquered by the Yeshua, but was not conquered by Ezra, you have to separate two chalas. One of them is burnt, and either because of intrinsic impurity of non-Israel, or because it would be difficult to protect from imported impurity. And then this, another one you have to give to a Kohen, 
either to avoid the mistake that pure challah may be burnt, because people don't are not aware that this part of the world ha- is included in the, you know, in the, that in that impurity, or so as not to forget that challah is given to a kohen, purity sa- um, is given to a kohen. In other words, if you just take one challah and burn it, you may um, uh, you may forget that there's a concept of giving challah to a kohen, and that's why we have the second one to give to a kohen. And the purity status of this Kohen in this part of the land is subject to dispute. It's not relevant to our discussion. Okay. Then we're going to get to diaspora nowadays, but let's talk about diaspora in Talmudic times. So option one was to do two Chalas, and the first one is given to a Kohen, so it's not to forget that Chalas is given to a Kohen, and no level of purity at all is required by this Kohen. And then the second one is you burn it to avoid the mistake that impure Chalas may be eaten by an impure Kohen. Um, and the option two is that you only take one challah and give it to a kohen, but this kohen must be pure, at least from severe impurity. In other words, he has to go to the mikvah to um, purify himself from a seminal mission, um, but no red heifer and stuff like that required. Now, so I mentioned that the challah's lechem is very strict, and he basically says that, he, that, that because nowadays we don't we, we're not we don't pay attention to whether or not we be a, a contract impurity because of the zivus the arizov that or different type of emission. Uh, therefore, basically everybody has to be all male all adult males are assumed to be uh, zavim, and we don't really we're not most of us are not aware of all the halachas of how to think, and basically everyone is a zav. However, the other poskim are, are not strict about that. And um, certainly, um, uh, the Alter Rebbe is Mekel, as we'll see soon. I did not see the Paschim and certainly not the Alter Rebbe talking explicitly about um, women and whether or not um, a, a woman going to Mikvah regularly would be enough or we require her to go with all the additional stringencies that the Chalas Lechem has. But let's see this Alter Rebbe. Okay. All the above, this is the Alter Rebbe's in Simon Tofnun Zayim, which is the laws of Pesach. And as we'll see later on, that even though um, it's customary nowadays, as we all know, that we don't usually give challah to a kohen to eat, it was quite a prevalent minhag until fairly recently that on Pesach he did. Not, not the case that we're talking about an Arab Shabbos of Pesach, but that on Pesach, if you baked matzah on Pesach and you were mafish challah, you gave it to a kohen, and we'll see soon why. So that's why this law comes up in the laws of Pesach in Simon Tofnun Zion, which is the laws of baking matzah, chapter 457, and let's read this from the Alter Rebbe This translation is taken from the Chabad Daru. All the is it, I have a question. Um, no, I was just thinking of the commonality of this uh, of Zav. I'm assuming it's some kind of second transmission. Oh no, I don't. I actually looked this up in the art scroll, and you know, they say what it is, but there's no note of. You know, we are not aware of this phenomenon now. Like, I don't know. Anyway. Um, don't forget that for a woman nowadays we don't differentiate between Nida and, Z- and Zava for a woman but Zava for a woman is also considered a bar- an anomaly, it's also considered a sign of un- something unhealthy so she's bleeding more than seven days it's not more than seven days, and she's, she's bleeding out of the cycle basically, I mean there's different shittas in Rishonim exactly how to anyway, okay, all the above applies with regard to Chala separated into Israel, which is not eaten by Kodim in the present era for we have all contracted ritual impurity resulting from contact with the corpse. Accordingly, 
The challah will have contract with ritual impurity, and thus it's forbidden to be eaten even by a coin who's ritually impure. Therefore, it's forbidden to bake this challah on Yom Tov. Okay, that's the uh, truth. Is we don't need to get into that right now. Um, maybe we'll get into that soon. By contrast, this is the relevant part. By contrast, challah separated in Chutzlar, it is only forbidden to be eaten by a Kohen who is impure because of a discharge from his body, e.g. a... What? Zav, yeah, that's a mistake. Um, oh, Zav or, I see. One second, yeah. Um, Zav or one who experienced a seminal emission, whether because of forces beyond his control or willingly. However, a Kohen who is pure with regard to the impurity resulting of Zivus or a seminal emission may partake of Chalav um, separating the aspect. This category includes a child who is not, a Kohen who is a child, i.e. he is younger than nine years and a day. Nine years and a day is the halachic way of saying nine years old because on your ninth birthday, you're already into the, yeah, so basically be younger than the, you know, his Hebrew birthday of 39, who does not become impure because of a seminal mission and also can be assumed not to have experiences of a mission since he is less than nine years old. If, however, he is known to, that he experiences of a mission is impure even if he's only one day old. It seems like, I mean, Nathrebbe doesn't seem to suggest that Zav doesn't exist. Anyway, a mature Kohen, meaning a Kohen who is older than the age of nine, who experienced a seminal mission, but who immersed himself in a mikvah, and this is very important, yeah. containing 40 saw of water fit for this purpose, as explained in Yeridea section 201. Now, that's very important to realize, because nowadays, strictly speaking, halachically, there's nothing there's, besides an Arab in Kippur and possibly an Arab Yom Tov, there's no obligation for men to go to mikvah. But the custom is, the monks see them certainly, that we are careful is called Tfilas Ezra. That Ezra made a decree that a man who experienced the seminal mission, whether, um, no difference of whether it was in a permissible or forbidden manner, even if it was because of um, being intimate with his wife, he, had, he should go to mikvah before studying Torah or before davening. However, for Tfilas Ezra, we're not so careful about the mikvah having all the kosher requirements that it has for a woman. And so, um, we're not going to get into all the details now, but there's numerous things that we're careful about when we build a mikvah for women, or even when we build a mikvah to immerse utensils in, which we may, may, not, may not be as careful about when we when building a men's mikvah. But for the, that's just in general for Tzvila Sezra. If you want to do that custom of going to the mikvah before davening, after you've had a seminal emission, you don't need to have all the stringencies that it has for a woman going to mikvah after menstruating, which is a of kares. But for eating, for a Kohen to be able to eat challah, it needs to be 40 saw of water fit for this purpose, as explained in Yeridea section 201. So whereas men will sometimes even go to, in absence of a regular mikvah, may even go to mikvah in a swimming pool, which has, has doesn't have any value for a woman, but does have value for a man to go to mikvah for Tzilas Ezra, but you wouldn't be able to eat challah if you're a Kohen after you've gone to the swimming pool. Um, in theory, a bathtub could be just as well as a swimming pool. Uh, the problem is that usually a bathtub is not big enough, meaning an average bathtub is a little bit, is probably a little bit more than 40 sa'ah, but it's not going to be big enough for you to put your whole, immerse, emerge your whole body under the water. It's just going to go flooding everywhere. Um, even though such a Kohen did not wait and if, if you have a huge jacuzzi, then it uh, might be uh, an option. Even though such a Kohen did not wait until nightfall after his immersion, he's permitted to partake in challah separated in the diaspora. 
true such a kind is impure due to the impurity associated with the human corpse and other types of impurity, and the challah is also impure. Nevertheless, our sages ruled leniently regarding challah separated in the diaspora, since it was instituted only to make a distinction as a remembrance that the Jews will not forget the laws of challah as explained in your days before you too. Therefore, if dough was designated as challah on the festive days of Pesach, um, okay, now here's another halacha. It is desirable for the Quran to be careful to eat the challah directly after immersing himself. He should not urinate between immersing himself and eating the challah, lest he release murky or cloudy urine that could possibly contain semen. So even if you have an adult Quran who's literally just toiled in the so if he's just toiled in the mikvah right now, and by the way, I haven't seen explicitly when men go to mikvah, we don't do all the, you know, we don't clean under our nails and do all the preparations that women do. So I didn't see whether that's necessary. But even if a Kohen has gone to Mikvah, has gone to Mikvah this morning, let's say, but we can assume that he's been to the bathroom since. So then, better that he shouldn't do it. Because who knows if maybe a tiny drop of semen came out together when he urinated with, with his urine. And therefore, the Kohen would be forbidden to partake in Khala until he immerses again. Khala should not be given to any Kohen who's more than nine years old, even though he says that he did not experience seven omission until he immerses himself. Um, Okay, so basically, so therefore, of all the options that we've spoken about, of giving it to a wife or daughter of a coin, giving it to a coin or to the son of a coin, the best option is always going to be to give it to a male coin below the age of nine, because then you don't have any of, um, of these issues. And again, maybe, perhaps we'll talk next week about giving it to an animal um, belonging to a coin, which obviously doesn't have any of these issues. Okay, now some of you may be wondering, um, I never heard of giving challah to a kohen, and I also never heard of taking two challahs. We only separate one challah, right? So, as Rabbi Absalom would say, funny you should ask. Um, so, indeed, the Rishonim already say, um, you know, this is explicit in the Mishnah and in the Gemara, but hold on a second, we never heard of anyone taking more than one challah. We just do one challah. What's going on over here? And we only ever heard of taking one challah. And the Rishonim suggests various reasons. Now, some of these reasons explain, I'm going to go through them. Some of them explain only one thing. They explain why we only do one challah nowadays. And some of them explain two things. Why we only separate one challah and why do we not give it to a coin? Why, in other words, like this. The halacha is in chutzlaretz you have to do two challahs. And the, sorry, the halacha is in chutzlaretz you have two options. One option is you do two challahs. One of them is burnt and one of them is given to a coin who's been to mikvah. Sorry, to a coin even if he hasn't been to mikvah. And the other option is that you do one challah and you give it to a coin who's been to mikvah or to a coin who's younger than nine years old. So Nowadays, the minhag is that we do one challah and that we burn it. So some of the reasons that we'll see only explain part of it, and some of them, some of the reasons explain both of those facets, why we only do one challah and why we burn it and don't give it to a Kohen younger than nine years old in practice. So first, let's start by reading the Rosh. Um, okay. Betemo, this is uh, shocking. Nowadays, in most places, so even the Rosh was aware that in some places it's different. We do not separate a second challah, even if you burn the first one. 
Says the Rosh like this, in the times of the Amairoim, in times even as late as the times, it's very interesting, in times of the Gemara, they had the access to the ashes of the Paraduma. And therefore, at least in Israel, Kohanim were able to eat Teruma, they were able to eat Chala. You could have a Kohen who went to Mikvah and waited for nightfall and had the sprinkling of the ashes and he was 100% pure. And they were eating Chala and it's so. And, and he brings a raya from the Gemara that indeed they had access to the, to, 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 to the Paraduma. And therefore, so long as in Israel, remember, what's go back to your chart. What happens in Israel? In Israel proper, you do one challah and you give it to a Kohen who is 100% pure. So long as that was happening, the Chachamim required that in Chutzlaretz we also give challah to a Kohen in order that we not forget the mitzvah of challah. But nowadays that we don't have access to the Paraduma, and therefore the mitzvah of the challah, of challah as it ought to be is basically forgotten anyway because there's no such thing as giving it in the land of Israel, where the law of Chala actually really applies. There's no such phenomenon as giving it to a coin anymore. So therefore, that's why in Chutzlaretz we only do one Chala nowadays, and we don't give it to a coin, we just burn it, and that's the end of it. Says the Rosh, that's the justification for the prevalent practice of only doing one Chala and burning it, not giving it to a coin. However, the Rosh finishes off, Minak would be an appropriate custom that we should give another Chala, to, we should give a Chala to a coin. Because, on the contrary, specifically nowadays when we are not giving challah to a kohen in Israel, there's all the more reason to give challah and chutzlaretz to a kohen. Because in Israel, we don't, we can't give it to a kohen. In Israel, you, in order to give it to a kohen, you have to have the ashes of the paraduma. But in chutzlaretz, where we have the option to give it to a kohen, then it's even more reason to do so. Why? If you don't give challah to a kohen anywhere, not in Chicago or in Israel, then how much more so will the mitzvah of challah be forgotten and tomorrow the Besamikdash will be reburned, will be rebuilt and nobody will remember that there's such a concept of giving challah to a coin. Now, here in this tour over here, the tour, it's called the tour of the Hamoy, one of the new tours and in the footnotes, they bring an interesting Svara, it says like this, you have, so we're only doing one challah nowadays, so what do you do with that one? Do you burn it or you give it to a Kohen below nine or a Kohen has been to make one? So he says like this, if you say that the reason, the reason you have to have a, give a, a second challah and give it to the Kohen in the diaspora is because we don't want people to think that you could burn pure challah Sorry. That would not be in the diaspora, that would be in, in the middle section, the element shrine. Uh, yeah, so nowadays that everybody everybody knows that everybody's impure and there's no paraduma, there's no nothing. So there's no reason, nobody's going to think that you could burn pure khala. But if you say the reason is that you should, like the Rosh just said, that you shouldn't forget, that we need to give it to a coin, so not to forget the mitzvah of giving khala to a coin. So then that's why nowadays we would say you should give a challah to a coin. That's one explanation from the Chazanish. And an additional explanation is the Malayah, he brings from the Malayah Eimer. I believe the Malayah Eimer is, um, he has it son, he has some of his time in the library. Um, and he said, um, that it depends what the concern is. You see the Rosh says the reason we just read this, that the concern is when Mashiach comes, we're going to forget 
to, to, to that you have to give challah to the coin. So therefore, take challah now so, and give it to the coin. So that Mashiach comes, remember to give it to the coin. But some say no. The problem is that if I'm going to give the challah to the coin here, then before Mashiach comes, I might move to Eretz Yisrael and give it to the coin there. And that's not allowed. I have to burn it. And therefore, we say burn it here so that um, when you, you shouldn't buy mistake, if you give it to the coin here, you might accidentally give it to the coin in Israel. So those are the different perspectives of the way to look at to look at it. Now, um, what other reasons could there be um, not to give it to a kohen? So the Beshasa brings from the Sefer HaTruma that um, the Beshasa brings from the Sefer HaTruma you have to make sure that non-Jews or non-Kohen, sorry, non-Kohen, don't eat it. So if you have this challah that you're going to give to a Kohen, then you suddenly have this headache to make sure that not even a single crumb is going to be eaten by a non-Kohen. Whereas if you just get into the habit of nobody eats it and it's burnt, so it's more, um, it's, it's safer. Additionally, he says, what if you give it to the Kohen and he dips his challah into the boiling hot soup? The challah, boiling burning hot soup. So now that bowl has absorbed challah. Has absorbed not challah, what we call challah. Absorbed challah that is forbidden to be eaten by a non-Kohen. And then next Friday night, the non-Kohen is going to eat his soup from that bowl, and um, he's going to be eating uh, the taste of challah. Um, so that's another reason. Now, the truth is that in itself is a whole question whether or not blius of time challah is the problem, but that's the reason given by the Sefer Atrum. Now, additionally, um, we have here another, another important reason, um, and that is that um, so the Taz and the Shach both bring this, and here there's some Jumukhah base, which is where the laws of Hala are discussed. And he says nowadays it's not customary to give it to a Kohen. Um, and um, in the he elaborates a little bit more. Yeah, the Bogan of Ram brings maybe one of his mothers became a Khalal. And um, I'm going to elaborate on this in a moment. I'm just looking through here. Um, And the Yam Shoshleima says, the Marshal says, um, nowadays we don't have proper yichas, and therefore we don't do it. Okay, so let's just summarize what that means. Basically, what all of these, what, the, what all these reasons, um, Paskim have in common is they're saying that the reason nowadays we don't give it to Koenim is because we're not convinced that we actually legitimately know who is a kosher Koenim. And whereas in the time of the Mishnah and even in the time of the Gemara, it was close enough to the time when they were actually commonly eating Trumas, Mises, Kobanus, where it was easier to remember. Nevertheless, nowadays um, we don't have that. Now, why would it be that a Kohen um, is not really a Kohen? How could that happen? So the way the Marshal says it, what he seems to be saying is that we just forget. And he brings the story of the Yohim Alavim. I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure if this is what he means, but because I don't know of a story of the Yohim with Levim, but I do know of a story of the Yohim with the Kainim. It's a famous Sefer Chassidim where he brings a very long, strange story. We've discussed it in the past of the Rav Haigon, who used to come up every year in the Shandarabba in the circle of Harazesim and the Shandarabba. 
and he, uh, the Tigran would, would meet with Eliyahu Hanavi, Abi Hashan Rabbah, and basically Eliyahu Hanavi told him that all of these people who are with you, who are considering themselves Kainim, of all of them, only one of them is a legitimate Kain. So perhaps that's the story that the Marashal is referring to. Um, now, why would the Kohen not be a Kohen? So what the Marashal seems to be saying is, is Yichas. Now, the truth is that both of the reasons that we're going to see now actually became even more prevalent nowadays with the quote-unquote Balshuva movement. So one issue is Eidos. That means like this. In order to know that I'm a Kohen, it may not be good enough to just have scientific evidence. You have to have Eidos. You have to have testimony. And if the father of the Kohen is not kosher a witness, he's not a Shomer Shabbos, for example. So even though I tell, he tells his son, you are a Kohen, and then the son goes and becomes religious and he wants to do he wants to be a Kohen and get the first Aliyah, it may not be good enough because even though he may be 100% convinced and have no reason to doubt the accuracy of, you know, he doesn't think his father's lying to him, but there may be a requirement for an actual testimony that he's a Kohen and therefore that may not be good enough. The other reason, which the Magen Avram, the Shach, and the Taz all bring over here, is that basically, which means that even if we know 100% and we're going to accept his father's testimony that he is a son of 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 Aaron, but perhaps one of the mothers was Nishalom. And the most common way of that happening would be was that if any of the wives, the mothers of anywhere in that lineage, had relations with the non-Jew, that would be the most common way, certainly nowadays, of that happening. So then the child is not considered a Kohen. I actually personally know um, an individual who became a Balshava, who he, when he became from, when initially when he started, his father, I mean, his parents were completely uh, secular, but his father did tell him that they're Kohenim. And in the first few years of him being from, he used to do and he actually lived in Israel for a while, he was Dukhaning every day. Um, but as he became more aware and more knowledgeable, he, he actually knew for a fact that before his parents got married, his mother had for many years a non-Jewish boyfriend. And so it, it was determined that he is not a Kohen. And in fact, he's actually today married to a woman who a Kohen would not be allowed to marry. Um, so that is a big issue that became very relevant with, the, like I said, in the Balshuva movement, where there were Kohenim who were becoming Balshuva. And, you know, if their mother was in college in the 60s, chances are she may have spent the night with a non-Jewish person, even if it wasn't a long-term relationship. So, so, th- so, so, therefore, that's why the midrash became not to, not to, not to give challah to a kohen. However, strictly speaking, even though the minhag is not to, strictly speaking, it is permissible. And um, the Ramah actually testifies in Simon Tovlin Zayin, in the laws of Pesach, like I alluded to before, that. Um, that indeed, even though the practice was year-round not to give challah to a kohen, on Pesach they did. It was always the minute, but on Pesach nowadays, that's not the minute either. In fact, nowadays, it's almost unheard of to make matzah on Pesach. We all make the matzah before Pesach. But, <laughs> but it used to be very common for me. They didn't have, first of all, they didn't have the thin matzahs that we had today. They had thick matzahs, which went stale after a few hours. We didn't have a freezer. So they would bake matzah every day of Pesach. So the custom used to be to give it to a client. And also, sorry? Sorry? Maybe our master, but not the thick. If you, we used to have here, Joseph Raven used to come. He had, he had the Tamani, you know, the thick pita bread style matzahs. And so nowadays, they, they don't do it on Pesach. Nowadays, but they keep it in the freezer. 
But as you keep that thing out of the freezer for 24 hours, you can't eat it anymore. It's rock hard. So, and also, this is the Russian of the Alter Rebbe, and Shokonarach, I didn't put the English, but there's a custom in these provinces, in these countries, not to give Chala to a Kayin. So it's the custom, but it's clearly not, there's no halachic. Strictly speaking, it would be permissible to give Chala to a Kayin in the diaspora as long as it meets, it meets the requirements that we mentioned before, which, practically speaking, best to give it to a child below the age of nine. Now, before we conclude, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm going a little bit over time here. Let's just discuss um, some possible reasons of why there would be a difference between Pesach and year-round. Why would we say that year-round we don't give the challah to a kohen, and on Pesach we do? So the Mogad of Rome brings the reason, um, So what he, what he means is like this. The Gemara says a story that um, it's, it's talking about whether there's numerous gifts that people have to give to a coin the tithes, the this, the that, the, the, the section of the shechted animals, the more is talking about the virtue of the coin who were quiet about it and kept to themselves and waited until they were offered uh, to be given. Uh, uh, the, the, these gifts uh, versus the gargaronim, the, the fressers, who went and you know d- grabbed as much as they could. So the Gemara says over there that with the exception of Erev Yom Kippur, and Erev Yom Kippur, even the very pious Kohenim would make a deal about making sure that they got some of the gifts to the Kohen in order to establish that it be known that I am a legitimate Kohen. If all they're trying to do is the, to, to, to confirm or establish their kuhuna status, so why do they have to go and take the, the, the jaw of the animal, which is one of the gifts, let them just duchen? And the Gemara answers, actually, we're talking about Kainim who, for whatever reason, were in a position that they were not able to duchen. Now, Rashi says, um, uh, one second, says, That on Erev Yom Kippur, there was lots of meat to go around. There was lots of animals being shechted. And therefore, every animal, you have to give those royal chayayim v'keva to the, to the Kohen, which nowadays is not practiced. That's a topic of another class. Uh, and, um, but basically, because there was so much to go around, if a Kohen didn't partake in it, that would, um, that would you know, so year-round, if you don't partake in it, you're okay, you, didn't, you happen not to get any. But in Erev Yom Kippur, if you didn't take any, then that would almost be saying like, oh, you're not a coin. So that's what the Bogan of Arab says, that because on Pesach so, there's so much matzah going around, I guess people are making a lot of matzah, so if you wouldn't give any challah to the coin, even then, that would lead to the idea that people not being, thinking that you're not a coin. So that's how the Minhag developed, that on, on Pesach you do give challah to the coin. And we'll finish off today's class Sorry, two two more things. First of all, I found another. Uh, the, 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 you could see that all the Pasuk and Mutzizek, they're all struggling with what's up with this minhag. Why are we not? Why why? What's the difference between Pesach and year round? If the minhag is not to give challah to a kohen, then you don't give challah to a kohen. Why should there be a difference on Pesach? The challah lechem comes up with a beautiful beautiful reason. He says like this: on Pesach, on Pesach, sorry, on Yom Tif, 
you're not, first let's talk about Yom Tov, not Cholomayit. On Yom Tov, you're only allowed to bake um, bread. Uh, again, just pre- preface, that this is just, he doesn't even say this, this is just a historic fact that you need to know, that uh, it was specifically on Pesach, where they had this issue with, they had to bake matzah on Pesach. On Sukkot, you didn't have to bake challah, um, you, you, you didn't, two things. First of all, on Sukkot, you didn't have to make challah on Sukkot because you have chametz bread lasts a lot longer. Again, if you're not talking about cracker matzah, you're talking about thick bread with no yeast in it, it doesn't last as long. That's A. B, on Sukkot, you have the option of Eichel and That means on Sukkot, you can make a big dough and theoretically, you could be mafrish, you could leave some of the dough to be mafrish challah from after Yom Tif and bake only the dough that you're going to eat. On Pesach, you can't do that, because if you leave dough, it's going to become hummus, right? But the other problem is that you could only bake, on Yom Tov, you're only allowed to bake Eichel Nefesh. You're only allowed to bake that which you're going to eat, right? You can't bake for after Yom Tif, and you can't bake for something that you're not going to eat. So if I'm, so, so you, so, so if I'm going to make matzah on Pesach, and I want to bake all of it, but the, after I've baked it, I'm going to be mafresh challah. Uh, I'm, I'm, mafresh challah. I'm not going to get into all the details of this because it's, it's just too big of a concept, but I think it's a beautiful thing, uh, chap, beautiful chap that he has over here. He says, if I'm going to bake all the challah on, on Pesach, so I'm going to bake all the matzah, and I'm going to be mafresh challah from the baked matzah, as we do. So the, the minute is you don't give it to a client. So I'm going to burn that one. So that means that I, I burned, I baked matzah that was not for being eaten. So how are you allowed to do that? So the answer is hoyel. The answer is that because when I put the matzah in the oven, there wasn't a designated one that I'm going to be mafresh challah from, and any one of the ones in the oven has the theoretical possibility of being eaten, and it's only after they were baked that I'm kerel um and making it challah, and then I'm not allowed to eat it, I'm going to burn it. So because while the, when I'm doing the act of putting them in the oven, they all have the theoretical possibility of, um, of being eaten. So therefore, um, it's, it's allowed. Says the Chalas Lechem, this concept of Hoyo, we only rely on that when we absolutely have to. But ideally, you only want to bake things on Yom Tif that you're actually going to eat. So he says, the minute not to give challah to a kayan, is a minag that whatever may uh, we don't really know. It's sort of we, the minag developed, and the post facto we're trying to justify the minag. So we say, oh, because maybe we don't really know who's a coin and whatever. But in halachically, strictly speaking, there's absolutely no issue to give a challah to a coin. Therefore, he said the, the minag became that on, on Yom Tov of Pesach, when you bake matzah, instead of having to rely on this hoyel that every matzah has the theoretical possibility of being eaten, no, actually give it to the kohen to eat, to a child kohen below the age of nine, and then you're not doing hoyel, then you're actually baking something which you're going to eat on Pesach, and that's fine. And then he finishes off, and it's, it's reasonable to suggest that because all the chalas of the matzah that he baked on Yom Tov were given to the kohen, so then it sort of a, 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 a naturally extended to being on Cholomayet as well, because most of the yom tif, most of the matzah that you bake is on Yom Tif for the Seder and for, for Lechem Mishnah, for Sudis Yom Tif, you bake a little bit on Cholomayet as well. And therefore, once the minute became that on Yom Tif of Pesach, you actually give it to a kohen, so to circumvent having to rely on this halachic mechanism of Hoyel, um, therefore, the meaning became that all the matzah, even on Cholomayot, is also given to a kayan, and like we've established, and there's absolutely no chashash, and um, that's how the meaning came, and I, I thought this was a beautiful chat.
Now, just to finish off with one point, and then so we're going to finish off now with the halachas of koyanim eating challah, and then next week we're going to elaborate on the ins and outs of the halachas of separating challah on Shabbos or on Yom Tif, and hopefully we'll conclude about what about this story that we started off with, with the challah on Shabbos of Erev Pesach. The Rambam says in the end of Hilchus Trumas, chapter 15, halacha 25, kol ha'oichel truma. Anyone who eats truma, first you make the bracha on that food. In other words, whatever the bracha on that food is. And afterwards he makes the bracha, similar to the bracha on Duchening, and commanded us to eat truma. This is what we received Even in Chala in the diaspora, which is not technically speaking, a biblical mitzvah. Nevertheless, we have seen that that's the bracha that is made. What's the mitzvah? Well, there's, no, there's no obligation to, to eat challah. The mitzvah is to separate challah. No, it is a mitzvah. Because it's like avayda, eating challah for a koyen to eat. One of the, the koyen, the Torah, Hashem gives the koyen a gift. One of the gifts is the challah. For a koyen to eat that gift is compared to avayda in the Beis HaMikdash. Avoid the basic English is obviously a mitzvah. Shenemar, as the Pesach says, Avoid us matona etinus kunaschem, that um, I'm going to give you the priestly gift, which is compared, which is avoid, which is a, a service in the temple. And indeed, this halacha is passed in Shulchan Aruch, the Ramon Yeridea says, Simon Shulchan Beisivay, Aichel Chala, somebody who eats Chala, right? <clears throat> We've discussed whether it was on Pesach or year-round, strictly speaking, a Kohen, either below the age of nine, or if he's been to mikveh, like all the requirements we discussed, may eat challah, even in Chutz first makes the bracha on the food, and then he makes the bracha, truma. So I don't know if my friend in this story actually did this bracha or not, but here would have been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity um, for this uh, hopefully eight-year-old nephew of his um, to have made this bracha will conclude over here and looking forward to continue the discussion next Sunday. Well, I'm trying to figure out what's the, the, the issue that you started to share with um, that story. What are, they, what are the issues exactly? There's, there's two issues in the story we started off with. There's two issues. One issue is, is it permissible to give challah to a Kohen nowadays, which we've by now clearly established that even though it's unheard of, practically speaking, and nowadays nobody does it even on Pesach, but strictly speaking, it's perfectly permissible. And the other, that's what we covered today. The other issue, which we're going, which we're going to cover next week, is that you're not allowed to be mafresh challah on Shabbos because of Masach and Mona. He wasn't concerned about burning, right? You can't burn it, it's Shabbos. Right, but that, was that the issue, or was it that he can't be yeah. Well, both. You can't be mafresh it, and you can't leave it because it's coming Pesach and it's Chomets. So what do you do? Okay, to be continued. Right, because it can't be misakin and you can't be...